to episode 1623 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello, Sam. Hello. You made a comment. Evidently, I don't recall exactly what you said, but on episode 615, you said something about the wins above replacement of a civilian being considerably less than zero. Something. Yeah. It was when we were talking about Abel Baker Charles. Ah, we okay. had to assess the talent level of, uh, of the unknown uh, hooker. Oh, that's right. Okay. Well, someone was inspired by that discussion to look into this question in depth of how much a civilian would be worth or how little a civilian would be worth. And there's a semi-viral Reddit thread about this, and it's by the user slightly ya underscore k-word. And he wrote about 1,500 words considering this question of how much he would be worth. And with the caveat that he's not allowed to take the field. So he he could have gone even lower on the scale if he had said that he would be playing the field. But I guess rightly assumed that he would not because he would be terrible. So even as a DH, he went through all the numbers, the batting, the base running, the positional adjustment. And he came out to about negative 15 wins above replacement for a civilian as a DH. You took a look at this post. Do you agree with the, the reasoning or the conclusion? Well, first, I'd just like to note that the username is slightly awkward with an oh. underscore between <laughs> W and K. So it's slightly off. Oh, that's right. Yes. I, I, uh, <laughs> there's no K word. I misread that. <laughs> All right. Yeah, uh, pretty good. It's pretty good uh, logic. Now, it's a lot less fun when you make yourself the DH because it's all yeah. the all the fun is in imagining yourself on, on defense and I think when you really talk about how much damage you could create it's like that say by the bell episode you know where they bought potatoes on margin do you remember that <laughs> no <laughs> okay so this was during the good morning miss bliss years and there was an episode where as a class project they had a little bit of money to buy stock uh, with and then they were going to see if they could you know invest stock uh, you know invest in the stock market and Zach got this bright idea to buy potato futures and he bought them on margin or as I believe Screech called it on margarine and <laughs> what they didn't realize was that the amount that you could lose if you buy say fifty dollars in stock is fifty dollars but if you buy fifty dollars of of potato futures on margin you could uh, lose it an unlimited amount and so when you're talking about the the value of a civilian slightly awkward civilian as a hitter all this person can do is is make out after out there's you mm -hmm. can't make more than you know you can't make more than three outs at once uh, and you probably can't make more than one and you're just gonna you know basically have a slash line of zero which is actually what a lot of baseball players have a lot of games and so you could fit in mm -hmm. fit, fit right in uh, and then you could you could do base running that'll hurt a little bit but again the most you can do is making out whereas on defense it's unlimited the amount of damage you could do unlimited you could have every single player on the other team score every single time infinitely because of how bad you are at defense and so uh slightly awkward just skips that step and says, well, of course I would be the DH. I would not play uh, in the field. And that's logical. No manager in their right mind. Although I think we, one of our teams, I think, had two civilians. But no manager in, in their right mind would put slightly awkward 
in the field. So that's, no I think, would accurate. put him at DH either. <laughs> so if you're, if you're going to do it, you might as well no, go all the way. Well, you only but... have nine. I think the presumption here is that you only have, you know, 10 players. And so you mm-hmm. have to have, you have to have him, you know, on, on the team somewhere because you don't otherwise have enough players. Although I guess the pitcher would just bat for themselves. Yeah. Anyway, getting past that, it comes to the conclusion that what he would never get a hit, even though he cites the Eno Saris article that concluded that a civilian could get two hits a year if trying. But rather than take those two hits, uh, I think that comes to the wiser conclusion that that the best strategy would be to just take every pitch. Mm -hmm. Further comes the conclusion that that he would walk about 3% of the time. I one time looked at this with with what would happen if a pitcher never swung. And I I think I came to the conclusion it would be about 4% of the time. So Mm -hmm. pretty close. I think that's actually probably generous for a reason that is not addressed here which is I think that the the civilian batting would it would be very clear was had no intention of swinging the bat ever yes right. and and because of that now everybody says oh so then the pitcher could throw strikes I'm taking that into account I, I still think pitchers would miss and would walk you every 25 to 50 at bats but I I think umpires would be very ungenerous toward the hitter who obviously wasn't going to swing I think the umpire would just say look if you're never going to swing yeah, I'm not going to waste everyone's give, time exactly I'm not going to give you credit for anything. So I think you would end up with a huge strike zone and maybe walk even less often than that. But yeah, so a, a 0, 0, 0, 0, 30, 0, 0, 0 slash line, the base running, since he's only on base 18 times, he comes to the conclusion that he would be the slowest player in baseball by a lot, which I think is true. I think that we don't give the slow baseball players enough credit for how fast right. they really are. I one time clocked myself going to first and i was worse than you know worse than a molina and and at the time i think i was like a 28 year old healthy person (laughs) so concludes what one base running run lost and a total of negative 15 war and i think that's probably pretty close yeah i thought he took a good approach to the problem and there's a an essay by bill james in the new bill james handbook that just came out recently where he comes up with this new metric called batter game score kind of an equivalent to his pitcher game score and it's maybe not quite as useful or as elegant for hitters but one of the interesting conclusions that he comes to is that most batters really all batters concentrate all of their production in a given season in a small number of games you know it most of their games they're terrible <laughs> they just they hurt their teams they uh, go hitless or or they don't do anything very useful and if you cluster their good games together it ends up being like you know they they might have uh, 30 good games or something in a season at the plate and that's where all or, or most of their value comes from. So in most of the games, you would not necessarily know that Slightly Awkward was <laughs> who he is and, and not an actual player. Although I guess you would know because he never swings. Which, if everyone knew that he were not going to swing, you'd think at a certain point, pitchers would just yeah. treat that as a, a break. They'd stop throwing anything hard i mean they wouldn't max out their cruising speed is still hard for a civilian but you know if they took a lot off if they just said okay i'm gonna lob it in there i'm not gonna bother throwing sliders or anything i'm just gonna basically throw change-ups or what would be change-ups to a typical hitter i wonder if there is a point at which it might make sense to swing if you lull them into a false sense of security for like half a season and then suddenly you know well so no, it wouldn't because your <laughs> primary incentive here is to get out of there alive. And the, the pitcher's throwing 
you know, batting practice fastballs to take advantage of your lack of swinging is significantly decreases the chances that you're going to get hit by a pitch and have yeah. it have it kill you. And so I actually think that if you were in a purely like if this were, were strictly about maximizing your production, then I do think on like an O2 count, you would probably still want to swing and try to get one of those two hits based on the fact that, yes, probably the pitcher is not going to treat you um, very seriously and is not going to, um, you know, throw you chase pitches, for instance, on O2, probably just going to keep, you know, pumping in easy fastballs. And if you can time it after having seen, you know, 100 plate appearances worth of these, uh, you might have a chance of blooping one out over an infielder. Mm-hmm. or at least making contact and advancing a base runner, for instance. So I don't think you would do it with a runner on first and less than two outs because then you might get into it, hit into a double play. But, you know, 0-2 count, runner on third, nobody out. It probably makes sense to to go up, start swinging there. What are the odds that the pitcher's going to throw four in a row yeah. out of the strike zone against you? Probably not that good. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you swing, you have now challenged these people. I wrote about this in my in in the piece I wrote for ESPN about would you play yeah. if you had the chance to play? Would you? Uh, how? What is the sort of minimum amount of humiliation that you would suffer, and would it be worth it? And one of the things that I bumped up against was would you would you swing? And and if you the the minute you swing, you're basically telling the athletes, okay, now you can humiliate me. Like you before that, they they have no real need to humiliate you because whatever quirk of circumstances has forced you out here uh you're no threat to them you didn't you're you're not trying to you know challenge them in any way they don't they have nothing to prove against you so they're just going to throw their strikes and and be you know move on but once you start trying to embarrass them they're going to start trying to embarrass you back and so you can't really swing once the first swing is like game on for the rest of the league and so i do i think you have to keep the bat on your shoulder the entire time for your own for your own sake Mm-hmm. And I guess if this is if negative fifteen is realistic for a DH, then if you were to play the field, and as you said, like the lower bound is uh, is boundless, basically you could be almost infinitely bad if you were in the field. But a realistic expectation, would you say, like double this? Like you'd be a negative thirty war player if you were playing a position regularly. Like the positional adjustment is not going to help you much. Although you might think that maybe depending on the position, you'd be a little closer to the average major leaguer than you would be at the plate. Like that to me seems fair, right? Like I I would not be as bad, I don't think, in the field relative to a major league player as I would be at the plate. At the plate, I would be so completely hopeless. I'd be totally outclassed. Whereas in the field, there are easy plays. Yeah. Like you, you, awesome. you get cans of corn, you get pop-ups. Like I can catch those things, you know? Yeah. Could I catch them in a major league game with uh, the stands packed and everyone watching me on TV? I don't know. But uh, if the pressure were removed, at least, I could make some of those plays, whereas I could very rarely hit <laughs> any pitch that a major league pitcher throws. Yeah, you would you would definitely make a lot of major league plays uh, if you were a left fielder. And yeah. so, um, what, uh, obviously, it's worse to be in the field than yes. to not be in the field. No one would, would put you out there. But what would your war be? I mean, it wouldn't be 
trying to remember what we decided an eight fielder defense would lose. Like oh, what the, right. I, didn't we think that Babbitt would go up like 30 points? Yeah, if we you said it a, would be big. It would be like the difference between a, a bad team and a playoff team. It was a question about like, well, what if you took a really good team and you took away one of their fielders? Then, yeah. you know, could they beat this other team? And I think I did that. I'm, I'm skin, skimming my article because I, I think I did conclude that you would catch, you know, you'd catch a fair number of, of baseball. So you would be better than nobody. Yes. Out, out there and there aren't that many plays I, I mean there are games where a left fielder might not get any plays and if you had a, a civilian if slightly awkward was in left field then the other fielders would compensate and would play over and try to get everything near them so it All wouldn't right. be as harmful so i concluded that you would cost your team something like 1.4 runs per game if you were a left uh-huh. fielder okay. and so um so that is 23 war yeah a year <laughs> right. if i'm right about that and so uh so you'd be somewhere between 30 and 40 negative war yeah okay it's pretty bad yeah All right, so a few people sent us a link to a survey that MLB sent out to a bunch of people. I don't know if there was any method to whom they sent this survey to, but people passed it along to us. And it's basically just a fan survey to ask about why they like baseball or what they like about it or how they started to like it or why they don't like it, what would make them like it more. They're just basic questions, uh, demographic type questions, and how did you start following baseball and do you like it? more now than you used to and how would you rank all of the major sports leagues and you know things that they're using to establish who exactly is answering this question so that they can bucket it later but there were some interesting questions here i think on the survey basically trying to get at what people want which is something that we talk about a lot on this podcast and i'm sure we will never hear or see the conclusions of the survey mlb has done these things before they never share data to my knowledge uh, once in a while rob manfred i think has alluded to things that they have determined from these surveys but we've never seen any of the information i would love to see some of it but we haven't. So a couple ones I thought that we could uh, maybe talk about briefly. Like one of them is if you could recommend one change to make the game of baseball more appealing, what would it be? And there are things here that we talk about a lot. Number one, at least for me, I don't know if this was randomized, but it's multiple choice. Faster paced, better broadcasters slash announcers, more music slash entertainment, more freedom for player expression uniform changes, socks, accessories, etc., more access to watching games on TV, less emphasis on baseball's unwritten rules, expanded playoffs, I wonder how many people are selecting that, division realignment, greater access to players, mic'd up on field, dugout interviews, autographs, or other I like that the example of more player expression is socks. socks. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>, socks. <laughs> I want them to have, uh, maybe that's like a, is that like a stirrups versus socks question? I, I want them to have more colorful socks. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, none of it is like, uh, I want them to show emotion or bat flip or anything. It's just about what they're wearing, <laughs> which is not really what people care about most, I, I think. But there was a, another question that asked about like, let the kids play campaign and it asked if people are familiar with that and if so what do they think about it and there were four choices never heard of it sounds familiar 
I agree, let the kids play, or I do not agree with it, <laughs> which if you're selecting that, don't you're saying, let don't the let the kids play. play. <laughs> yeah, don't. Uh, I'd, I'd love to know the, the data here, the breakdown, but what would you guess would be the more most popular response to this? Or I guess if you want to say what yours is, I don't know, it's, it's almost, uh, we're in kind of a different category, I think, like none of the options for why do you watch baseball was because I have to do a podcast about it or write articles about it. I need ideas for a column that those were not choices, but did any of these uh, choices stand out to you as this is what I would select or this is what I think everyone will select? For what would you change? The what would you yeah. change one? I'm, yeah. There were you threw a bunch in there. One yeah. of them was speed the game up. Faster paced. Yeah, I think I think I think yeah. that it's got to be like 85 percent of people are going to choose that. I hope so. Yeah. For me, it was the first listed one, but I don't know if, if that's randomized or not. But yeah, a lot of these are just, uh, you know, more access to watching games on TV. Sure. There are a lot of people, people who are blacked out on MLP TV would probably choose that number one because uh, yeah. they can't watch the well, game otherwise. But they, uh, yeah, what's the phrasing of the question? Because I feel like more like, access to watching games I mean, on TV. Even people that are even even people that are blacked out of, of games, there there are like what? Nine to thirteen games available every day, no matter what region you're in on MLB. Mm-hmm. Like the amount of access to televised games is considerably higher than it was during, you know, the period where baseball was the national pastime and baseball yes. players were more famous than the president. Yes. So it's hard to say that that more access to games is what baseball. Uh, what would make baseball? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Although a lot of people just watch their team now, so they don't care if there are nine other games on if they can't see their own team. Yeah. Although the you know mo- in most cases those people can see the games. I-, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is that that's more of an answer to like if you're a baseball fan, what's a thing the league does that super annoys you? Yeah. It's not what would make baseball right. you know the national pastime again. Like that's mm-hmm. that's like a thing where baseball is just really like sticking it to a certain segment of their fan base mm-hmm. but it's not what's keeping the 300 million people in the country who who don't know anything or care about baseball from yeah. picking it up yeah actually there are two different choices more freedom for player expression that was the socks one and then a separate one which was less emphasis on baseball's unwritten rules which uh, often those two things go together because they're unwritten rules against player expression so those are sort of uh, two facets of of the same response really but yeah some of these are like expanded playoffs probably MLB is hoping (laughs) everyone's gonna click expanded playoffs and then we can say this is what the fans want so uh, 16 teams in the playoffs now i don't think that'll happen but some of these are like you know more music (laughs) more music slash entertainment i I guess uh more entertainment would be good but not uh non-baseball entertainment if that is what they mean which is probably what they mean yeah yeah and then there's a question when watching a game online or on tv which of the factors below are important to your enjoyment of the game and this is a select all that apply question and it's my favorite team is playing, player expression slash inclusion, a, a, <laughs> a close game, in-game analysis slash statistics, quality of the announcers, watching with friends slash family, or other entertainment, mascot, gamification, music, etc., and uh what is, gamification is that like fantasy sports yeah probably okay. yeah maybe gambling i don't know yeah. but i mean 
I guess almost all of those are, well, important. I was going to say they're all relevant. I think for most people, my favorite team is playing would be uh, overwhelmingly the number one. And then a close game, I think, is pretty important. And all the others, uh, I guess watching with friends, family, like in this case, this is online or on TV. So this is not an in-person game. So that changes things. And, uh, you know, quality of the announcers is nice, but I, I won't necessarily turn off a game because of the announcers. I might turn on a game because I know that the announcing crew is really great, but uh, it's not usually a make or break thing for me. And, you know, I think most people, it's uh, they're going to watch it because their team is playing and it's a good game and they like baseball and uh, it's faster. Faster paced is, is what we were saying. I guess, you know, all of these are, are fairly basic questions and you hope that uh, there will be a strong response favoring the things that we like or that our audience likes. And I will link to this survey on the show page if we want to cram the ballot box with effectively wild listeners who who can uh, express their preferences. But is there anything that if you were designing a survey and you could send out a survey about baseball, you would want to know what baseball fans think? Or do you feel like you have a pretty good handle on what baseball fans think? Because you are one and you know a lot of them. Well, you asked what baseball fans think. And so that kind of throws out the non-baseball fans. And the question is whether you... Yeah, right. Whether the goal is to cater the game to the fans that you have and get them to to watch a little bit more and to maybe to quit complaining so much when they see you, mm-hmm. um, or if the goal is to to grow the game. And as far as the the latter, as far as the growing the game thing, I in the last I don't know what it is that that caused this, but in the last few months I've kind of gotten I've felt like the conversation that we often have about all these little details and whether they make the game you know more or less watchable we we talk about them as though they're crucial to the health of the sport and i think that the health of the sport how, okay how do i put this in the over the last few months i have felt like the things that cause massive institutions like baseball to become more or less popular over the course of generations they just aren't about things like pace or free agency or mm-hmm. socks or how much music is played it just all feels like the the macro trends in the world are just so much bigger than these conversations we have yeah and what we're really talking about when we have these conversations is what do i like and maybe maybe as a consumer what is what am, what will cause me to watch five percent more or five percent less of it yeah and we don't just want to talk about ourselves all the time. So instead, we we frame it around this question of like, can Major League Baseball be saved, or can you know, can it is it dying? And and this big question. But I just don't think that that's how the how the world works. There's so many people, and mm-hmm. the things that move millions of people. I just don't think they're things that we usually debate. And so I guess the question of how do you entice 300 million other people to watch the game uh, is is not going to be on this survey, that it's, mm-hmm. it's just going to be unsurveyable. If I were doing a survey for fans and, and I was just thinking of it narrowly along the 5% that I would watch more or less line, mm-hmm. I, I guess, I don't know. I'm trying to think of how I can phrase a question to get the answer that I want, which isn't yeah. really the point. Yeah. Maybe I have a feeling that there's not enough coverage of the day that there like you should have more baseball on, that it shouldn't all be on at the same time. 
Mm. You know, that mm-hmm. if you if you give people the this is weird, but if you give people the opportunity to watch baseball at three in the morning, I feel like some people would. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. People watched the KBO when it was on at odd hours in the US. Yeah. 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 But I mean, obviously, you can't have games being played at three. And so then you, you get into the question of are you tape delaying it? Okay. Never mind. Forget I said <laughs> any of that. That's, I haven't thought this, this out that much. I would like to establish a baseline for the brand of baseball that people prefer. Even if it is not the determining factor for why baseball is popular or not popular, I still would like to just say, this number of people like, you know, this number of runs scored per game or home runs per game or whatever, because as it is, we just have no real data, no consensus. You know, people just say, well, people like home runs and offense and other people say, no, it's too many home runs and people don't like this. And there's nothing to base that on except our personal preference and anecdotal information, really. And so I would like MLB to just establish here is the product that people like at least people who already like this product people who are watching baseball want baseball to look more or less like this and then we can figure out how active do we want to be in actually making it look like this and is it better if it changes from time to time or do we always want to keep it pegged to that but that's what i would like and i think it's difficult in a survey because if you tell people you know name how many uh, runs per game you like do you like uh, four runs per game 4.5 uh, five runs per game I don't know that people can really feel intuitively what that means or, you know, the further away you get from run scoring, if you start talking about home runs per game or or hits per game or whatever, then it's even more and more abstract. So I don't know that it's actually possible to answer accurately with a survey, but I would like to know just like how many people actually like uh, home runs and, and scoring fests versus small ball and what percentage of games would you want to be, you know, tight nail biter one nothing games and how many do you want to be like 10-9 games with tons of offense? I would like to just know that so that we could plan around it or not plan around it, but just not argue about it without any information really. Isn't part of the question though how much you want to feel like this is planned? Part of the joy is feeling like what is happening is organic and that it is uh, the result of players going out there and doing things that lead to unpredictable results and unpredictable outcomes and styles of play that are very natural. And mm-hmm. so you don't you don't want to feel like you're in a you know like a I don't know a community that's been too overly planned. You, yeah. you in some ways you want to hide the architecture. Yes. But I think there should be a little more oversight because uh, it just seems completely out of MLB's control and they don't seem to do anything to bring it into some line that uh, everyone agrees on or, or the majority of people agree on it. It just seems like MLB is less active in monitoring the style of play than some other leagues are and intervenes less often in trying to correct some of these things that maybe most people would agree have gotten a little bit out of control. And it's hard to know how to intervene or when to intervene if you don't really know what people prefer or how strongly they feel about it. So I would like a little more information about that. But I do completely agree with you that all these things that we obsess over endlessly 
are probably less important than many of the macro trends that we can't control and that MLB can't control and no one can control. And it's just, you know, what are people's other entertainment options and how much money is available to them and how much free time do they have? And is there a pandemic? And, you know, all of these other things that... And uh, also, yeah, I mean, the, the way that sports, that entire sports have in some ways become... I, I can't speak that intelligently about this, but I've heard other people sort of speak about how sports were kind of outside of the political groupings that sports weren't seen as being like a cultural uh, signifier in the way that mm-hmm. that like a, a minivan or a you know a, a type of a car might have been, and that that's also becoming the case. And so, if you're, for instance, you know, soccer, and you are, I mean, you could do a bunch of debating about some small rules change or about whether to put ads on the uniforms or about what network to broadcast on or what sort of broadcast you have or or all those sorts of things. But but really like the dominant force for the next 50 years for soccer is going to be like how people see you as a cultural signifier. Mm-hmm. And that's like a much bigger thing that that actually probably will sway tens of millions of people to either embrace or reject you as a sport the same way yep. that like it feels like you know the the decision of whether you are a like whether you're a NASCAR follower probably is 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 not really so much about i i about the broadcasters or about mm-hmm. the pace you you just sort of know whether the people around you who um, you align yourself with are, are also NASCAR followers. And so anyway, that's just a, a one example of, of many of like these huge cultural trends that probably totally engulf the smaller picayune details that were, we tend to debate because we yeah. have some control over them. Which is not to say that uh, commissioners or leagues have no impact on a sport's popularity, because I think they do. Like if you're a visionary, if you're Pete Rizal and you see the way the winds are blowing and and you see that TV is going to be huge and you kind of get in on the ground floor and you make football, the NFL, the big TV sport that everyone can see and everyone follows, then maybe that catapults you into dominance. And, and that is partly a, a result of those trends that you can't control, you know, technology and and TV becoming available and everyone getting one, but it's also you then taking advantage and knowing how to manage those trends to your advantage, you know, and so if it's uh, Rizal, if it's David Stern, you know, structuring the league and it's marketing around its stars or, or whatever, like, I think there are things you can do to recognize how you can benefit or how you can avoid the abyss. And I don't know that MLB has been the most proactive when it comes to those things, although MLB has been good, I think, about embracing the internet and was a streaming pioneer. And MLB TV is kind of a, a model for other leagues and other forms of entertainment. So hasn't been completely left behind, but I think there are other things that baseball just can't really do much about. So you just get buffeted by these forces and you have to figure out if you're springing a leak somewhere and bail out as quickly as you can. My moonshot idea for baseball has been that they should, they, they should basically the, the league's 30 teams should make a commitment to buy a baseball and a baseball glove for every eight-year-old forever like every year every year you just you can go redeem your uh voucher like on your eighth birthday you get a voucher you go down to the sports store and you buy your 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 mitt and your glove or maybe it's when you're seven or maybe it's when you're six but 
I, I feel like the likelihood that you are, I, I, obviously you can enjoy baseball as as a spectator sport without having felt the the, the feeling of, of playing catch. But I think mm-hmm. that the, the, the correlation between having that feeling and having that familiarity with with what it feels like to throw a ball and what it feels like to catch a ball. And the pleasure that you get from seeing it done professionally is probably significant. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that if there's a, a real like reason to doubt that baseball is coming back, it's just that like most kids don't, don't play it. And like, I, I don't, I just don't know how you expect to appeal to millions of people in their twenties and thirties who don't have that, connection with you Mm -hmm. already established so um so like if you do the math if you figure like you know 20 bucks for per kid for what five million kids a year that's a hundred million dollars that seems like a lot but it's uh it's a 10 billion dollar industry that feels like it's nothing yeah and I have seen Manfred cite you know, the odd time that he has alluded to these surveys. He has said something like our our data shows that playing baseball is a, a big deal when it comes to becoming a baseball fan. And he has said that, I think, to support MLB's efforts uh, you know, on behalf of youth baseball or softball. But those efforts, I think, could be better and bigger. And yeah, there are some obstacles there because baseball can be an expensive sport. It can be hard to find a place to play it. And I have seen some encouraging data, I think, on youth baseball bouncing back a bit, maybe because of concerns about head injuries in other sports not being as prevalent in baseball. So that's something, I guess. Anyway, I will link to the survey. You can check it out. There are some other interesting questions here about when attending a game, which factors are most important to you, and which of the following baseball-related activities have you done in the last year. Listening to a baseball podcast is not one of the options, unfortunately. But I'll put the link on the show page. Last thing I wanted to mention, there was a baseball music video that premiered on Tuesday. It's for the Stroke song, The Adults Are Talking, which is on their 2020 album, The New Abnormal. And I really like that album. I really like this song. And I like this video, too. I'm not really a a music video person. Not really one of my favorite art forms. If I like the artist, then I enjoy just uh, seeing the artist uh, play music or fake play music, if that's what the video is. But often, I just have no idea what's going on, and it has nothing seemingly to do with the song. And I don't know if this music video really has a lot to do with the song. In fact, uh, one of the top comments on the YouTube video is, while listening to the album, I thought of a thousand different possibilities for a music video of this song. Not a single one of them was baseball with robots. And that gives away what the music video is. So this is sort of a, a baseball album already because it has a song called Ode to the Mets. And yet the song Ode to the Mets doesn't seem to have anything to do with the Mets. And Julian Casablancas is a, a Mets fan. And I think he says that he wrote this song while standing on the seven train platform coming back from a Mets game. But it's definitely not directly related to the Mets. And the adults are talking. It's not directly related to robots playing baseball. But I like this. Basically, the, the premise for the video 
is that the strokes maybe representing humankind are matching up with robots in various sports and endeavors. It's mostly baseball, but there's some tennis in there. There's uh, even like boxing. There's sushi making. The robot is making perfect sushi. And basically the robot is perfect at everything. So there's a pitching robot. There's a hitting robot. I guess it's the same robot. It looks like a Terminator. And it is... uh, playing against the strokes one by one they come up they swing through the robot's pitches they get hit hard by the robot but then finally at the end there's some contact and a hitter gets on base and rounds the bases and scores and then you find out at the end that the score is 56 to 1 in favor of the robots but the strokes are celebrating they're celebrating their lone run getting blown out here and uh, I don't know what you made of this but I enjoyed it I thought the baseball was pretty good I enjoyed the strokes custom Astro style tequila sunrise jerseys that say strokes instead of Astros and uh, I didn't really have any major notes when it came to the baseball being hmm. bad as we often do when it hmm. comes to representations of baseball on film none you didn't have any well <laughs> i mean it's uh it's a robot playing yeah. baseball <laughs> but... by the way just uh the an interesting plot detail that you um skipped over is that yeah. the the hitter does not actually score the run the the contact is preceded by julian getting hit by a pitch true yes and, that's and then right. he's on first and then one of the strokes, I, I looked up which one it was, mm-hmm. but I, I forget, and I couldn't even be sure, because to be honest, they have some resemblance to each other. <laughs> yeah. So he he drives Julian in. Mm-hmm. I had a few notes on okay. here. One is that uh, they're wearing uh, plastic spikes, you know? Mm. They're wearing Little League shoes. They're, yeah. they're not wearing metal spikes. Yeah. That's a bad, that, for, that's a pretty. For safety. It's for the studio. I don't know. They yeah. uh, tape their bat instead of using pine tar. So uh-huh. they've got that really like kind of gym class style tape on the, the handle of the bat. Mm-hmm. I don't think that this is a baseball thing, I, but they, they have a real thing about putting zeros in front of single digit numbers. So Fab <laughs> Moretti, Moretti? Moretti? Yeah. Fab Moretti has a. Mm-hmm is uniform number two, but it's it's zero two. Uh-huh. The inning number at the end of the scoreboard says the inning is the ninth, but it says zero nine. And I think both of those are unusual for mm-hmm. baseball. Yeah. Let's see. Well, of course, the strokes are old. They're really old. <laughs> and so if, I, if you just look at them, if they were all on the same team in 2020, they would have been the oldest, the second oldest, the fifth, the sixth, and the ninth oldest players in baseball. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that could happen, Yeah, but they're really old. Julian takes off on the pitch, but then once contact is made, he then turns to run. So there's a little bit of a continuity problem there where he seems to be going, but then he's not going. Uh-huh. He also has a weird way after he gets hit by a pitch, he steps on first base and then turns to face the home plate, you know, as as you would, but he turns to his right, he turns over his right shoulder, which was just interesting. It was an odd way of reaching the base and then turning the yeah. way that I think most people don't turn. That's pretty small. The jersey, the strokes uh, has a big, strokes does not read very cleanly across the buttons. And mm-hmm. my wife uh, pointed out to me this season that one of the things that she most admires about professional baseball is how precisely the the team names read across these 
these jerseys, mm. despite the existence of buttons, despite the way that these shirts are made. And she says that's like really impressive and a very difficult thing to do. They did not pull it off for the Strokes jersey. <laughs> and uh, there appear to be two base coaches at one point, maybe third base coach, maybe first base coach. I'm not sure, but there's two of them. At the and same base. <laughs> at the same base. They're, they're, they're yelling at the same time for, I think, Julian to go. Mm-hmm. And lastly, there's a huge rain rainstorm that yeah. soaks them all and causes a rain delay, but the umpire is totally dry. <laughs> he gets wet at, at some point, but yeah, okay. I guess maybe that's a continuity problem also. But yeah, I think I appreciated... You know, it's. I think it's. Those are mostly nitpicks, or yeah, the the cleats, the the plastic spikes are my main thing. Mm-hmm. I wonder why the robot hits him at all. It's a yeah, a very, that's like, a great question. A, no, like exactly. Super baseball twenty twenty scenario where you have right. these uh, these robots playing. You know, if the robot is is perfection, perfect, yeah, personified. That's then, why I brought it up. Yeah, yeah. Why why would he ever uh, miss that badly? Yeah, you have to assume that he was hit on purpose. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating. Like that's a that's a great unanswered yeah question in the plot. Yeah. Why did the robot hit him with a pitch? Yeah. And I I take this to to me, and I mean the question of why they're celebrating getting blown out fifty six to one. I assume that the the message here is that the robots are perfect or almost perfect, or they can do everything better than we can do it, but we have emotion or or we enjoy it more they're just these uh, soulless machines performing their baseball exercises and uh, julian is is running around showing more emotion than i think i've seen him typically display and uh he's he's happy he's running and sliding and celebrating in their spring champagne and uh i i assume the sentiment is that uh well they may be better at us than everything but they won't enjoy it as much so it's a victory for us uh or it's just like they're not perfect and we still have a chance or something because we didn't get completely shut out so that's something score one for humankind i don't know exactly what the the takeaway is isn't it just like irony like you think that they want like it's just a joke right it's like yeah. they, they start celebrating because yeah. they celebrate first and you're yes. like oh they won the celebrate right. champagne and then they show the scoreboard and it's mm-hmm. 56 one so i feel like it's really just a very long build up to a <laughs> to a pretty simple joke yeah well it got me yeah i thought it was interesting that in this world we had robot opponents before we had robot umps yeah no the robot umps, umps. Yeah. still human yeah Huh. Yeah, I wonder whose side the Empire is on here. It's interesting because we have this kind of obsession with with deciding how good baseball players are. And the last 20 years, particularly of baseball writing and baseball analysis, has been trying to strip out as much noise as possible to figure out how good the players actually are with as much precision as possible, separating them from, you know, the weather and the teammates and the ball and the stadium and all those things to try to get as close as we can to saying who how good each of them actually is. And if we if we really wanted to do that, we would not have them play against each other. Mm-hmm. We would have them play against robots, against some like uniform pitch deliverer. 
and mm-hmm. uniform defenses and uniform offenses that would be perfectly consistent against everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, we don't want that. That looks like a horrible experience. And what we really want is the much messier question, not of who's best, but who wins. And mm-hmm. it doesn't matter who's best. It's just who wins. And uh, it's a reminder that the joy is not, as J- John Thorne put it to me one time, and I think about all the time, like the 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 central enjoyment of baseball is not determining whether Dwight Evans was better than Harry Hooper or Harry Hooper was better than Dwight Evans. Like you can debate that, but the point of baseball is not actually to answer that question. Mm-hmm. And if it was, then yes, we would have robots, but it's not. We don't want the robot game. Yeah. I just rewatched the hit by pitch and I think it actually does explain why he hits him with the pitch. So because it's raining, and as you said, it's raining selectively. So some strokes are getting wet, others are not, the umpire is not, but there is a, a drop of this rain that falls on the robot's eye or oh, his, his eye sensor. And it causes yeah. the little it, glitch. Yes, there's a I little glitch. I couldn't figure out why they yeah. had that shot. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So that seems like a, a major engineering flaw <laughs> there that well, I yeah. guess this robot is only able to play in perfect conditions. But uh, that seems like something that could probably be pretty easily rectified. But in this model of the robot, he loses the plate if a, a single drop of water gets in its eye. So that's a problem. Yeah. And yeah, I wonder what would happen if it were participating in the champagne spraying. That might be a, a fatal error. But I think that's what I took away from it, that the robots are perfect, but uh, they don't have the camaraderie. There's no shot of the robot team mates celebrating the way there is when the strokes score at the end and they're all jumping around and spraying each other with champagne. There's no uh, no emotion let the robots play. They're not showing, they're, you know, they're not wearing any socks. They're not expressing anything. And the strokes still are, even though they're getting trounced. If you were to create a baseball game where the humans were playing against robots, would you insist on them having human-like mechanics, pitching and, and hitting mechanics? Because there's no actual reason for a, a robot to throw like a human. You could mm-hmm. You could have them throw probably just as hard without a human-like pitching motion and yet they do and it kind of creates a little bit of an uncanny valley here like the the mechanics are not quite right yeah um it feels like a bad imitation of a pitcher yeah so would you do you feel like it will be important when eventually the robots replace the pitchers that we have them actually pitch like humans or can they just spit the ball out Yeah, I think they should look like humans. Not exactly like humans, because if they look exactly like them, then uh, you you can't tell that it's robots, and that's a whole other dystopian scenario. But I think, yes, because A, it sets the bar higher engineering-wise. If they can't just look like a pitching machine, if you have to have them mimic human motions, then that's impressive and and harder to do. But also, I think because we kind of get a kick out of it. It's like when people watch those Boston Dynamics robots videos where they're like jumping and opening doors. Nobody likes those. (laughs) Well, people watch them and I think are terrified by them possibly, but are riveted to them still. I think we like seeing machines that look like they're alive or, or like they're coming alive or they could be alive so yes i i think i would mandate that they look like uh living beings to some extent i think that you've got that right i think people hate that and that (laughs) it makes them deeply uncomfortable and they the reason they don't like that company is because they they make the robots look like awkward people 
Wouldn't that be good for rooting interest, though? Because then you would root against would the Would anybody the root for the robots? robots? <laughs> I think a lot of people would root for the robots. Isn't... Uh, don't Even you think that... Even if they like scary silent? Once you get past your favorite team, then what percentage of rooting in sports... Again, taking away people who are directly cheering for their team. Once you get past that, what percentage of rooting in sports do you think is against people? Like, you watch the Bucks because you want to root against Brady. Mm-hmm. versus that you root uh you turn on the a, a different game because you want to root for some team that you don't otherwise have a rooting interest in i'd say like 20 percent. just just because i think most rooting is because you're watching your team and you want no, but we're to throwing win. that out we're taking that out so like okay say say 60 percent is people watching their favorite team so then of the remaining 40 percent, what, uh. what percentage of that is is uh shot in freudy rooting <laughs> i'd say like 40 and the rest is just uh because you like the sport or you you know you you have nothing else to do it's something Mm -hmm. to put on in the background yeah most people will root for the underdog do you think that they're rooting in that situation when they turn on a random game they root for the underdog whoever's trailing Mm -hmm. or whoever's lower seated do you think that they're doing that because they really want to see the underdog or do you think they're doing it because they want (laughs) to see the favorite topple yeah i think it's a bit of both Uh, there are some favored teams that people don't hate right like uh, we talked about how the dodgers were not that hateable a team even though they were favored and maybe that's because they hadn't won before so they weren't really seen as an overwhelming favorite but you hate the patriots maybe and you hate the astros and and you hate certain teams for reasons that uh you know have off the field origins or just because they're so good and they're always there and you're sick of them but I think a lot of the time you're just rooting for the long shot that's just there and, and should have no chance but is doing a good job. So Okay. Yeah. So the equivalent to baseball against robots would be a sport like, say, downhill skiing, where you're it's like the competitor against the mountain. Uh, and yeah. do you think that most people are rooting for <laughs> the person to make it down safely? Or do you think that there's a lot of rooting for, for people to crashing yeah i don't know yeah no one's rooting for the mountain really but i guess they're they're rooting for some people and therefore you're rooting against other people not that you want them to die or hurt themselves seriously but uh if you want them to not (laughs) do the slalom well or whatever i don't know how uh heated things get in downhill skiing when it comes to rooting for or against certain people and obviously there are like national loyalties and and all of that involved but okay uh, i want to i'm going to give one more sport example okay that i think is similar to baseball player against robot when i i root exclusively for terrible holes in in golf like when i turn on if i ever have golf on all i want is to see like a quadruple bogey i want uh-huh. every 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 shot to go far into the rough so i can watch the person get deeper and deeper into this ditch that that a bad shot gets you in and so isn't that rooting for the robot (laughs) yeah i guess so i don't know how common that is (laughs) do you think that's a common thing that you're rooting for the worst possible performance (laughs) i feel like i don't good good golf shots are so boring I disagree. I think they're satisfying. Like there was that incredible hole in one recently in the Masters where it was like skipped across yeah. the water. Well, if they could and... do that every yeah. time, sure. I, I saw that and I was like, maybe I should be watching golf. But this doesn't happen often enough for for me to be enticed. But yeah, because isn't it just 
boring at a certain point uh, like you know if you're just uh quadruple bogeying a hole and you're just it can be funny sometimes like if you're if you have a really good golfer who's just like slamming it against the wall of the sand trap over and over or into the pond or something then then it can be kind of funny because they're usually so good so to see them screw up horribly can be entertaining but uh you wouldn't want to watch that for like an entire round right if someone was just kicking the ball all over the course that's not much fun so for the most part like okay so when you're driving the preferred shot for you know off the tee is is a very boring outcome it's just like you know somewhere down there in the middle of the fairway and that's not interesting you don't really want to see that so on the drive you have to root for a wild shot that's the only interesting outcome of that particular segment of the broadcast is the ball goes somewhere crazy and so the drive can't be interesting if it's good. With an approach shot, then they could hole it. That's fun. But if they don't hold it, otherwise they're just going to hit the big fat part of the green. That's pretty boring too. So yes, I will take a I will take hole out from the fairway, but otherwise I want chaos. Now, mm-hmm. if you're chipping, yes, I think anytime you're chipping, unless you've already got like a, you know, like five on the hole, then yes, uh, you, you chip and your pitch shots have the chance to be really beautiful. And then a putt, if it's like beyond, say, like 26 feet, then it's fun to see it go in. But otherwise, I think you want it to miss. I think any, particularly any putt within four feet, you want to see a miss. Mm-hmm. That's funny. All right. Well, we set out to do an email show and yet again answered no emails. I have a quick stat blast to end on. Do you have have, one you want to do? I do, yeah. Okay. All right. Let's do some stat blast. Uh, who goes first? Uh, mine will be quick. I don't know okay. if... All right, Go ahead. I'll, I'll do mine first. And it actually is uh, inspired by an email. So there, email show. This is from Ian, who says, My dad sent me a package with some old cigar boxes full of 1973 Topps baseball cards. Drawn at first to big names, I was struck by the different eras of baseball represented among the Hall of Famers alone. This led me down a rabbit hole. My main question became, what is the longest span of time from the beginning of one player's career to the end of a second player's career where both were active in at least one common year? My first oversimplified and incomplete method to get a sense of how long we are talking about was to look up the longest tenured players and find which players played the longest leading into and out of those careers. So Nolan Ryan overlapped with Darren Oliver in 1993. Their combined run is from 1966 to 2013, 48 years. But after getting the crayons and graph paper out, I think I've maxed it out at 52 years. Deacon Maguire's first big league game took place in 1884. He overlapped a year with Rabbit Ranville, 1912, who ended his career in 1935. This is, of course, not a conclusive approach, but I am at a loss for a good read, less time-consuming method to arrive at a concrete answer. If you can think of a niftier way to look, I'd be interested to know if there are any longer. It was fun falling into the timelessness of baseball for the last hour. Two people played the same game at the same time. When one started his career, no one had telephones, and when the other finished his, you could ring up Delta and book a flight. Anyway, not sure if this is anything, but thought you would all enjoy. 
And I did, and my non-time-consuming method is to ask someone to look this up for me. So I emailed Adam Ott, our sometime StatBlast consultant, and he quickly got me an answer here. So, of course, this is complicated by the fact that there are strange exceptions, like there are players who played, you know, appeared in a game years, decades in some cases. Yeah, you have to settle the Minoso uh, question before you start this. Right. So, as Adam says, the top of the list is filled with mini Minoso type players, players who played in a game years after they actually retired. To keep these players from overtaking the entire list, I only allowed each player to appear on the list twice, once as the earlier generation player and once as the later generation player. So Ian did a a pretty good job, actually. Uh, Darren Oliver and Nolan Ryan, that's a good one. That is uh, number 15 on the list if we're not factoring out any of the weird ones. So that's pretty good. Deacon McGuire and Rabbit Moranville, or is it Marinville? I'm not sure. That was ninth on the list. But even that one, like, would you count that one? That one, if you look up those guys' careers, so... Deacon McGuire, this is 52 years. McGuire debuted in 1884, and then he played nonstop through 1908, but then he didn't play in 1909. He played one game in 1910. He didn't play in 1911. He played one game in 1912, and, you know, he was uh, 48 by that point. I haven't looked up the specifics, but I'm guessing he was just uh, coming out of quasi-retirement to play one game in those years. So that's one of those cases, too. And as for Rabbit, he played uh, continuously until 33, and then he was off in 34, and he played 23 games in 35, so that's uh, that's legitimate. So I think even that comes with a slight caveat. And as Adam determines here, I think the the longest really legitimate one where neither guy was uh, taking some kind of break and coming back as a stunt would be 51 years, so just one year less than McGuire and Rabbit. And that's Early Wynn, who debuted in 1939 and played until 1963, and Tommy John, who debuted in 1963 and played until 1989. And I think that one counts. And as Adam points out, Wynn missed a year for military service. Tommy John missed a year for Tommy John surgery. But those guys were playing, and I think that counts. So if I'm just reading down the list, like the longest, if we count everyone, it's 63 years. And that is Jim O'Rourke, who debuted in 1872, played until 1904, and uh, Charlie O'Leary, who debuted in 1904 and played until 1934. And both of those are obviously weird ones. So Charlie O'Leary, uh, he he played legitimately until 1913. And then he came back for one game when he was, I think, a, a coach with the Browns in 1934. He was 58. I think they thought he was 50, but he was actually older than that. And he just played one game, one plate appearance. He got a hit. And, uh, Get out of here. Yeah, he got a hit. He's, uh, his baseball reference bullpen page says after three seasons with the cubs o'leary joined the st louis browns as a coach in 1934 late in that season he played in a single game becoming one of six players in major league history to play a game after age 50 appearing 21 years after his last game he singled and became the oldest player in baseball history to collect a hit or score a run what is even more remarkable is that he was seven years older than his listed baseball age at the time he was actually 58 the only major leaguer to appear older than o'leary was 59 year old satchel page so hmm. 
That's uh, 63 years. So then there's Nick Altrock and Dutch Leonard, 56. Minoso and Ricky Henderson is 55 years. Dan Brothers, Nick Altrock, 55. Nick Altrock and Arlie Latham, Jack Quinn, 54 years. Bobo Newsom and Minoso, 52 years. And uh, there are some others that, you know, have that same caveat. If you go below Wynn and John, you get Tommy John on the young end going to Jamie Moyer. That's a cool one. That's 50 years. And then Joe Nuxhall, who, you know, debuted in his age 15 season. And Nolan Ryan, that's 50 years. Jim Cott, Julio Franco, Huey Jennings, Jimmy Dykes, Nolan Ryan, Darren Oliver, Cap Anson, Huey Jennings, Charlie Huff, Alex Rodriguez, Warren Spahn, Steve Carlton. Anyway, fun question, fun list. I will put Adam's spreadsheet with the full results online if you want to check it out. Deacon McGuire's game, one game with the Tigers, was because the Tigers players refused to play in oh, pro- that protest yes, okay. over, over the suspension of Ty Cobb for attacking a yeah. fan. So they came up with a substitute game, and that was the game where, like, famously, like, eight players had their only appearance in the majors, and they yeah. lost, like, uh, a lot. They lost yeah. a robot game <laughs> yeah. as a score. They lost 24 to 2, in fact. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. Okay. How have I never heard of Charlie O'Leary? Yeah, it's a it's a good story, right? Fi- good trivia question. Twenty one years <laughs> yeah, since years his old. last appearance. Yeah. Twenty one years, and he got a hit. <laughs> oh my goodness! Maybe they were taking it easy on him. Maybe it was like a they figured it was slightly awkward yeah. up yeah. there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Seventeen since his uh, his last minor league appearance. Seventeen yeah. years of career <laughs> since his last minor league appearance. He's a coach, so he's probably uh, hitting fungos or something, staying in shape. But that yeah. yeah, I I think you're probably right. That couldn't have been a uh, pitch thrown in uh, in in high effort. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, mine is also a reply to a question. This is from okay. Greg, who asks, "I'm wondering if there's any difference aside from the obvious additional base between doubles and triples in terms of mm. batted ball profile, launch angle, exit velo, expected average, etc." Maybe I'm way off, but they both seem pretty similar. Just maybe triples are hit into places on the field that are more difficult for fielders to get to. Please tell me I'm way off. Thanks. And you saw a little, hopefully you've forgotten what I wrote, but uh, <laughs> yeah. you saw a little bit of a reply to this uh, a little while ago. But do yes. you have a, do you have an opinion about this question? What do you think of when you think of a, of a triple compared to a, a double? Well, Obviously, a lot of it is dependent on outfielder positioning and the fences and does it take a a weird bounce and does the outfielder play the Mm -hmm. carom, right? So there are definitely a lot of batted balls that could easily be doubles in some scenarios and triples in other scenarios. Mm -hmm. I guess, I I don't know, I guess I would think of maybe like you get more triples that are over an outfielder's head, but... Not necessarily. Like, you know, there are a lot of triples that are just down the line and they take a weird bounce off the fence or there's not much foul territory or something. So if you told me that they were the same, I guess I would accept it. I wouldn't say, no, that's completely implausible. I saw some of your answer, so uh, I I don't want to spoil that, so that obviously influences my thinking. If you had asked me before I saw your response, I'm not sure what I would have said, but, you know, I, I guess, like, you get more bases, maybe, on the whole, it makes sense that those balls would be hit harder, but... uh 
but there are a lot of cases where that's not true. So it's it's sort of hard to say, which is why you looked it up and why it was asked. Yeah, and the answer is kind of interesting because it's a little bit of, of both. Um, what I actually sent to Greg and that you saw, we're going to ignore that because that just looked at 2020 and 2020 was a, there were only 250 triples hit in 2020. It was a short year, obviously, and triples are already pretty rare. So I looked at 2017 through 2020 and the difference is both clear but fairly small. So I have here four different figures that show the difference. A triple has an average launch angle of 19 degrees. A double has an average launch angle of 16 degrees. So that's a clear and significant difference. That shows up in all four years that we look at. Mm -hmm. The average exit velocity for a triple is 97.6 miles an hour. For a double, it's 97.2. That's a minimal difference, and it doesn't show up uh, evenly across all four years. In fact, what you saw was that there was a pretty significant difference in 2020 in favor of the triples. But in 2017, for instance, doubles were actually hit harder than triples were. It has a six, a double has an average, uh, has an expected WOBA of 683 on average. The triple has an expected WOBA of 722. Hmm. So clearly triples, I mean, WOBA is just launch angle times exit velocity, basically. Mm -hmm. And so not times, but like, that's what it's based on those two inputs. Mm -hmm. So we already kind of knew that those two inputs favored triples a little bit. And sure enough, uh, it shows up in expected did Woba. Um, and then uh, for expected batting average, uh, for doubles, it's 580. And for triples, it's 555. So in fact, doubles on average are more likely to have been hits than triples. And that's probably because triples tend to be on more fly balls. Fly balls have a little bit lower expected batting average in some once the launch angle gets high enough. So that's what we have. There is a difference, but it's, it's, um, it's clear it's not massive in terms of quality of contact. It shows up more in launch angle than in exit velocity. But I wanted to get a little bit deeper on this because if you just look, if you put all these into a spreadsheet and you look at them, you see that what gets labeled a double it covers a wide, 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 wide range of batted balls. Yeah. So, you know, there's doubles that are grounders that just sneak through the infield and are doubles because. In fact, the outfield has to charge in on them, and it's a hustle double. And then you have doubles that are, like, absolutely blasted off of, say, a a high wall and would have been home runs in 29 other parks and might have gone 440 feet and just couldn't possibly look any less than, like, a hustle double or a flare down the line or something like that. Mm -hmm. So um, I wondered about this, and so I, I looked basically at the extremes. And if you look at the extremes for exit velocities, pretty much all of the extremes are doubles. And that's at the top and the bottom of the uh, spreadsheet. So for the the 200 highest exit velocities last year, mm-hmm. only six, well, okay, let, first let me establish, 8% of doubles and triples are triples. So if you have 100 doubles and triples, eight of them are going to be triples, 92 are going to be doubles. So you would expect eight of the top 100, if these were evenly distributed, eight of the top 100 exit velocities would be triples, 16 of the top 200 would be triples. In fact, only six of the top 200 are triples, so way way fewer than expected. 
and none of the top 46 are triples. The top 46 exit velocities for these extra base hits were all doubles. And if you look at the bottom, it's even more extreme, of the bottom 200, only four were triples, and, and you have to get down to the 136th weakest hit, extra base hit, to find the first triple. Huh. So, in fact, it's not that the triples are the weird weird outcomes. Like I also had that idea. In my head, I thought, well, a triple is a double where something weird happened in a lot of cases. A triple is a double where it bounced funny. Triple is a double where it was misplayed slightly. A triple is a double where something sort of odd happened. But in fact, the triples are the normal ones. The doubles in a lot of cases are the sort of weird things. And that's, I think, because a lot of doubles are homers that barely stay in and bounce back hard to the fielder yeah. or their singles that land in funny places and become doubles. So the doubles are the weird things. The triples are kind of just uh, actually sort of normal. And mm. if you, if you take out the top, I forget, I don't have this in front of me anymore, but if you take out the top 10% and the bottom 10% of exit velos, and then you compare the doubles and the triples, then the gap between them actually shrinks quite a bit. And and in that case, doubles and triples really do end up looking pretty much the same. What you actually see is that what separates a double and a triple more than anything else is the handedness of the batter uh, because left-handed batters tend to pull. These, I guess, tend to be on pulled balls more than balls hit the other way. And so uh, left-handed batters hit a lot more of them. And if you look at the rate of triples for left-handed batters versus right-handed batters, it's a significant advantage for the left-handed batters just because the the difference between a double and a triple is whether it's hit into the left field corner or the right field corner a lot of times just because it's a longer throw to third base. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, cool. One last note on my stat blast. I, I mentioned that the longest combo was Jim O'Rourke and Charlie O'Leary. So O'Leary, who had that hit at age 58, he was not a particularly good player in his prime. He was a, a replacement level player for his career. Jim O'Rourke, though, the front half of that combo, he was a Hall of Famer. Here's his story for why he was playing at that point. And uh, Jim O'Rourke, when he got his uh, last appearance, that was 1904. So he was 53 years old at that point, And he hadn't played in the majors since 1893 when he was 42. So here's from his baseball reference bullpen page. He started in pro ball in 1872 and had his last major league appearance in 1904. Even after that, however, he made an appearance in minor league ball through 1912 when he didn't come to the plate in 1913 on the advice of his physician. <laughs> the New York Times noted that a string of 36-plus years had been broken. The Times failed to note his years in the National Association. He is the second oldest player in Major League history to hit safely in a game, so he got a hit in that game too. According to the Hall of Fame and the U.S. Census Bureau, O'Rourke was born September 1st, 1850, thus when he hit safely for the New York Giants on September 22nd, 1904, he was 54 years old and 21 days old. Giants manager John McGraw was a friend and former teammates of O'Rourke, so he allowed him to catch this one game. He didn't just pinch hit. He caught, and he caught the whole game, I think. Ironically, it was the game in which the Giants clinched the 1904 pennant. So that was uh, what baseball was like at those <laughs> times. It was <laughs> weird. Yeah. All right. Weird. All right. 
That'll do it for today. Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Thomas, Phil Thomas, Fred Navarrete, Harrison Riley, and Zachary Ellenthal. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Sam and Meg coming via email at podcastfangrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. One of these weeks, we will get to an email episode when we actually do a lot of emails. Sometimes there's just a bunch of banter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance, and we will be back with another episode soon. Talk to you then. You